Hello, this is Sabrina Donahoe for DCUFM. In this podcast, I spoke over the phone to author Jeffrey Kane, who worked as a freelance journalist in East Asia, specialising in Korean politics and economy. His book, The Republic of Samsung, will be published this year, while Jeffrey works on his next book, The Perfect Police State, where he delves into the mass persecution of Muslims in Western China. Firstly, I just wanted to ask um, you about like your early career and um, how you transition from working in like anthropology and Cambodia and then you know starting journalism yeah sure so I can tell you all about that so um so I started um so I, as an undergraduate I was at the George Washington University uh, and I was doing anthropology research I was sent to Cambodia in the summer of my junior year on a research grant I was looking at garbage dump scavengers who have built a village um, around this garbage dump. I wanted to study you know, how they create a society, you know, how they create a um, cultural institutions and, you know, it, how, how they created, you know, these social structures that revolved around garbage, this economy of garbage. I thought that it was something that, um, you know, spoke not just about Cambodia itself, but it was a topic that, that um, it, it went, uh, you know, broad. I mean, it really told us a lot about the the world that we live in and the poverty that some people live in around the world, and also some of the results of the market economy, the global market economy, the liberal economy, because uh, these were, you know, free marketeers, entrepreneurs who had nothing else they could do, and they decided that they were going to make their living, you know, selling recyclables from a garbage dump in Cambodia, picking them out, and then mm-hmm. selling them to companies that would then put them in factories and make plastic furniture out of them you know, 100% recycled goods. So that was an eye-opening experience for me. And that, that's something that uh, I really, you know, was fascinated by, but also thought was grotesque in many ways, the situation these people were in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, so um, so after my undergraduate studies, uh, I, I, I graduated the year of the 2008 economic crisis. And uh, there wasn't really a whole lot of employment to go around. I mean, it was pretty much that year was a, a miserable year for a lot of undergraduates. Um, and I decided that, well, you know, the, the best thing I could do to make use of my anthropology skill set is to become a foreign correspondent. And it's essentially the same thing. I, I would say that the, the main difference is in anthropology, you are you know, studying cultures and you're building um, a theory, you know, or you're contributing to a hypothesis or a theory, whereas in journalism, um, it's more matter-of-fact than straightforward, and you're, some, you're, you're documenting what's happening in the world minus the, you know, academic theorizing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how I, uh, I became a correspondent. So um, I started out, I was uh, I was writing for a, um, a news service called IRIN, which is, at the time, it was run by the United Nations, and uh, I was covering Southeast Asia for them. I was looking at humanitarian topics, um, development topics. I was looking at, you know, the need for clean water, um, the need for proper health care. So topics that are prioritized by different UN agencies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from there, I went on and I became a, um, a mostly a political and uh, economics reporter. I was uh, at The Economist for a while. Uh, covering Southeast Asia, and then I was also at a magazine called the Far Eastern Economic Review, which was the, um, you could say, in its day, in its heyday, it it was the premier uh, magazine on Asia, Uh, and it was sort of the go-to magazine for people who wanted to understand how Asia works. Mm -hmm. 
so, um, yeah, so I was in Southeast Asia until 2012, um, on and off. I also spent some time in Korea, but I decided that ultimately Korea was a country that I was interested in covering uh, because in North Korea you had this fascistic dictatorship run by this ruling dynasty, uh, one of the most closed-off nations in the world. And then in South Korea you had this, uh, you know, this extremely capitalistic system. This, um, uh, you could say, uh, I, like a crony capitalist system, and it was a mm-hmm. system that was doing very well. Um, it was a, a prosperous nation, a newly prosperous nation, a relatively young democracy um, that had come out of years of poverty. And now, it, you know, around the time I was going, that's when K-pop was getting big and the Korean wave and the Gangnam style and all this. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I was really interested in covering the entire Korean Peninsula. Um, so I went up to Korea. I became a, uh, a writer at Time Magazine first and uh, The Economist continued with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, after that, so I, I was covering... You know, I was visiting North Korea. I was also living in Seoul. And then I got a job at a media startup called Global Post, which uh, is now defunct. It was bought up by PR as the world. But, uh, yeah, that, that was essentially my career. I wanted to tell the story of the society Korea. And um, that led me to my book. I, I was looking for a way to tell a story about South Korea and how it got where it is now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I felt that, um, you know, Samsung is the the untold story of Korea and the untold story of the tech industry in the global business world. Um, so I decided to focus on that and to un- try to understand Korea through this massive company that, uh, does, that makes so many things that we use. That's really, really amazing. Um, like everything you've done. Um, well, and just to follow on from that... Um, just would you have chosen um, Cambodia, like Vietnam, and you said you chose Korea because you were specifically interested in staying there, but would you have chosen like other Southeast Asian countries to work in if you hadn't been like um, placed there through like your employer or through a scholarship or what were your, what would be your reasons? Well, okay, so the thing about Southeast Asia is that um, I did enjoy it while I was there covering those countries, mm-hmm. but um, after a few years, I felt that the global interest in Southeast Asia just wasn't as big as it would be, you know, compared to other regions. So um, I knew that I wanted, I mean, I had always been interested in Korea and China and also the Middle East. I mean, I, I considered going to the Middle East or Africa, mm-hmm. uh, but I I had already been in Korea in 2009, and I, I had become fascinated just with this country and, you know, with this, this thriving, dynamic society, um, you know, with so much global interest, so much potential, and with so much going on. And, it, it, you know, it was partly because I enjoyed writing about the country, but also it was a pragmatic decision, too, because Korea is a peninsula that um, has outsized influence on the world, and yet it has so few foreign correspondents who actually live in Seoul and specialize in the country and speak mm-hmm. the language. Um, you know, it's not like China. In China, there are so many uh, correspondents right now. In the Middle East, there are so many correspondents who speak Arabic and have been in the in the region for, you know, for years and decades. Um, but Korea was one of those gems that I think had an untold story that needed more attention in the news media. Okay. Um, and, yeah, from maybe especially from your work in Korea, could you tell me about, like, what your most memorable experiences were? Um, yeah, on the uh, sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, I have a few memorable experiences. <laughs> so my most memorable experience was taking a train across North Korea. Uh, it was an old Soviet train. It looked like it was out of the 1960s or something. Uh, it was this greenish, grayish color. And um, it was, I mean, it was so like old and rickety. It was just, it was hilarious because it was a train like you, you, you would have to go between cars and uh, it would be like an open space between cars. So you have to step over this giant gap between each car if you, you know, if you were to trip or have too much to drink or something. Yeah, you might trip over and then get caught uh, in this, uh, you know, this gap between these train cars. I mean, that, that's the kind of country. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, so it, that's the kind of country it is. But yeah, we took a train. Um, it was a group of us, about about 12 people, um, all foreigners. And uh, we started in Pyongyang, the capital. And then uh, we hopped on the train. We went to uh, Wonsan. Wonsan is another North Korean town, slightly north up on the coast. We also went to um, Hampong. Hampong is another industrial town in North Korea. And then we went all the way up to the Russian border, where you, I, I would call it the frontier of North Korea, and it's a town called Chongjin. Mm -hmm. uh, Chongjin is spelled C-H-O-N-G-J-I-N. Mm -hmm. uh, so Chongjin is a border town in North Korea, and it's one of the most heavily policed areas of the country for foreign visitors. Uh, we were one of the few, usually foreign visitors can't go to these kinds of places, but we were one of the one of the earlier groups to be allowed access to Chongjin. Um, so we literally, you know, had to sit in the hotel the whole time. We weren't allowed to go outside at all. Um, and then also, we weren't allowed to say, like, like, the curtains had to be closed, and we weren't allowed to, like, open the curtains and take photos of the streets outside. I heard mm -hmm. stories there of previous visitors who had gone, and, you know, they would they would take a quick photo with their smartphone looking out of a North Korean hotel, and then somebody would knock on the door a few minutes later and, you know, say, delete your photos, what are you doing? Um, you know, that's, that's the level of surveillance that they have in these countries. Yeah. Um, you know, North Korea is probably the, one of the world's most extreme police states, and I was amazed at how, you know, just surveilled we were the whole time and how um, our movements were just so incredibly controlled. But that said, um, you know, one of the things that I have learned from covering North Korea is that the North Korean people, you know, they get a bad rap. They're, they're seen as, um, you know, people who are brainwashed and who hate Americans and hate the Japanese. Uh, there is a lot of truth to this, but, you know, the North Korean people are also human. I mean, I've had a lot of really fascinating discussions with my North Korean guides um, you know, who are typically highly, highly educated. They're elites in their own country. They pay attention to the world outside. I mean, they... They aren't robots. They really, you know, they, they know what's going on in their country. They know what's going on in the region. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that we need to give the North Korean people more credit instead of, in journalism, treating them as these goose-stepping soldiers who can't think on their own. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And there is a huge, like, under-reportage of North Korea in, like, in the light that you talk about. And um, so looking to the future, would you be focusing more on like, now that you've left Global Post, would you be focusing more on um, Korean stories, or would you be focusing more on being an author, or how will you proceed? Um, do you mean, like, my focus when I was at Global Post, or um, what I do now? Yeah, no, from now on, um, like, since you specialized in um, Korean politics and inter-Korean politics, or even in just North Korea, like, would you f focus more on, like, features and journalism or 
um, yeah, being an author and working on your next book? Yeah, um, so my focus, so when I was in Korea, um, I, I evenly, so when I started out in 2009, um, I split my time evenly between North and South Korea. I was covering both countries. Mm-hmm. But after a while, I felt that uh, the North Korean story was um, not only overtold, but there wasn't a lot of new action happening. It was you know, the story of North Korea is essentially the same story over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, it's changed a little bit recently in the past year with Donald Trump and his talks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the most part, I mean, go if you go back to the end of the Cold War uh, and go back to there was a nuclear crisis in 1994. Uh, North Korea and North Korea's relation with relations with the U.S. have essentially been this story that's replaying over and over. It's like a broken record. Uh, you know, we, we sanction them more, they threaten us more, uh, and we sanction them some more, then they test a nuclear bomb. It's just, it's, mm-hmm. it's a problem that you know, I, I think has no policy solution. I mean, I think that North Korea is set on its path, and uh, you know, we might get some concessions, uh, the Americans might get some concessions out of them, and you know, the North Koreans might get some concessions out of the Americans, but it's, it's not a story that is fresh Mm-hmm. and, you know, has much to really tell us about North Korea and how the people there think. Mm-hmm. So this is, um, so North Korea, this is something that all, or, sorry, not all, I shouldn't say all, but this is something that most uh, Korea correspondents go through and they get frustrated with, is that um, when you're covering North Korea, it's the same story over and over, and that's not, you know, if you're a journalist, you don't want to be writing the same thing over and over every month or every six months. Mm-hmm. That's how it is with North Korea. Um, so, um, I decided to focus my efforts, my work more on South Korea and South Korean society, um, for the second half of my time there. I thought that, you know, South Korea was a story that was mostly untold to the general public. Mm-hmm. And, um, it was a country that was, you know, vibrant. It had, it was having this cultural renaissance. Um, Korean films were winning a lot of awards at international festivals. Uh, you know, Korean pop was this global there was Gangnam Style, you know, Psy, um, you know, now there's BTS. Like, there's always something new going on with Korea. And when mm-hmm. I was there, you know, one of my first stories um, was for a magazine called The Fast Company. I was invited uh, by Samsung Electronics to visit their campus for two days and interview a lot of their um, top executives. Um, mm-hmm. did a ton of interviews during that visit. But I found, uh, you know, visiting Samsung to be one of the more interesting stories that I had covered anywhere in the world, uh, because there was a massive company that uh, comprises, you know, 20%, one-fifth of South Korea's exports that makes everything. I mean, they make apartment buildings, they make trips, they make insurance, they, uh, you know, sell financial products. Like, like it's just, um, it, it's a company that is just so massive, and yet nobody really knows the story of how it helped build this nation of Korea and then went global and started challenging Sony and Apple, which, you know, at the time were far more advanced than what Samsung was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but Samsung, it's a, um, it's a company that, that, you know, helped build this Korean miracle, this South Korean miracle. Um, but it's also a company that nobody really knows about. I mean, they, they see the brand everywhere. They see the name everywhere. It's so influential, and yet there's no actual story out there on, on the Samsung empire and how it got to where it is. Uh, so I decided I wanted to write about that. So that's how I started writing my book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a dramatic story. It's not the same as you know Apple and Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. It's a different story. It's a dynastic story. 
Um, it's, it's about you know a three generation dynasty that uh, took influences mostly from uh, wartime Japan, um, you know, which was a fascist empire, and so imported them and found a way to you know build South Korea with it too to to use this militaristic mode of business and to uh, use patriotism and to get people behind them and to you know, build a nation in addition to building a company. Hmm. Where did you last hear me? Um, I was just uh, asking you a question um, about uh, like how Samsung's power could have also an influence on um, like over patriotic sentiments and um, leaning towards nationalistic sentiments in Korean culture and you know how because you were saying how the ethos for Samsung, some ideas were taken from Japan, and it's kind of ironic because it has such a big impact on Korea's economy and um, politics, but at the same time, like ch- school children are taught to, like, you know, reject, um, yeah. yeah, like Japan and so on and so forth. So, just your, your thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah, that's the, but that is the irony, um, you know, that in Korea there um, there is just, you know, massive, um, it's a massive post-colonial anger at Japan and the atrocities that uh, the Japanese Imperial Army committed in Korea during the war. Um, you know, that's not to say that Koreans are unique. I, I think that a lot of different groups suffered in World War II, mm-hmm. but... Um, the, the the amount of nationalism is something that is you know is um, that's the unusual part because uh, you know in many ways the um, you know the post Cold War world was very much the uh, you could say the post nationalist world I mean the idea of nations was always you know falling apart in most places around the world in developed countries around the world we had entered this age where um, you know we have identity politics, you know, we have, uh, you know, we have people pledging what seem like allegiances to individual groups, you know, over their nations. I mean, this is something that is very much like kind of a postmodern, post-Cold War um, uh, environment, you know, and, you know, Donald Trump right now in America is, you know, even, you know, he's a populist and he plays on nationalism, but he's challenging many of the very institutions that you know make up American democracy and American uh, patriotism. I mean, he's he's taking them down and tearing them apart. So you know, he's in many ways he's this post kind of this uh, post Cold War populist figure that it's yeah. Anyway, so I'm just going on a tangent mm-hmm. there. But uh, to get back to Korea, um, you know, the the interesting thing about can you hear me? Yep. Okay. So the interesting thing about Korea is that. Um, you know, as nationalism was breaking down in a lot of places around the world uh, in the 1990s and, and 2000s, we were in this post-nationalist age. Uh, Korea was, in many ways, the opposite. I mean, if anything, nationalism was strengthening from the 80s to the 2000s. I mean, there were massive uh, nationalist movements against uh, U.S. military bases and, uh, you know, against Japanese war crimes, demanding uh, more repayments for Japanese war crimes. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that this is really, it does set Korea apart, and it's something that um, has similarities in both North and South Korea. I mean, the, um, the North and South Koreans, you know, they, they, they were just two or three generations ago uh, one nation. 
I mean, or sorry, not one nation, but one peninsula. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they were formally separated, um, you know, Republic of Korea and Democratic Republic of Korea in the late 1940s. Mm-hmm. Uh, before that, it was one peninsula under Japanese rule. Um, Japan reshaped so many institutions and, uh, you know, so many cultural factors in Korea. And then before that, it was, you know, one peninsula, um, one peninsula that was, uh, you know, for hundreds of years, I think 700 years, but you'd have to double check that, mm-hmm. uh, under a single dynasty, the Chosun dynasty. Uh, you know, it, it's just, it's, it, it really does, you know, create this, um, insular, uh, you know, uh, um, what's the word I'm thinking of, like homogenous uh, system. It's, mm-hmm. it's um, like, that, that's what that's what's different about Korea. And, you know, I, I think that all of these historical and cultural factors play into, you know, what we've seen with Samsung in Korea and also the uh, similar companies in Japan. Um, you know, you have this three-generation dynasty, this emphasis on family, this emphasis on, you know, the family controlling the company. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have this, uh, historically you had this, you know, these teachings, these patriotic teachings of the Koreans, you know, were a, a pure and, um, uh, pure and brave and oppressed race who needed to, you know, rise up and beat Japan, you know, and then one day can compete with the, the bigger powers like, you know, the uh, European powers in America. That was really the division of, uh, the chairman of um, the, the founder of Samsung, Lee Byung Chul, and then his son, the current chairman, Lee Kuan Hee. You know, they they wanted Korea to be a great nation that could you know rival and defeat Japan one day. Uh, so it was it was a, so so the, the Korean system was set up so that business and uh, politics and nation were so intertwined that it was just it was incredibly difficult to separate them. And this is the legacy that continues today in East Asia. Uh, so, like, for example, over in China, uh, I'm sure you saw the news about the Huawei uh, chief financial officer, Miss um, yeah. Wong. I forgot her full name. You know, and now, you know, the, the Chinese government is upset that uh, that the Canadian government has arrested Huawei and they're retaliating. You know, they yeah. they just uh, arrested a, a former Canadian diplomat. He's in the hands of the Chinese spy agency. I mean, it's I don't think they have admitted forthright that it's the result of retaliation, that this is retaliation, but I think that that's the implied you know, the, the implication here. Um, uh, but, you know, that um, that just shows right there, you know, this this nexus of politics and business in East Asia, uh, you, I, you know, you, you could not, um, you know, if, if you were to reverse the situation, say, uh, you know, there were an Irish uh, business person who was arrested in Japan for, you know, he traveled to Japan and there was some sort of uh, crime that this person was suspected of and it was an actual legitimate, you know, crime on the books, like, I don't know, evading some sort of sanction or embezzlement or something like that. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't think the government of the Republic of Ireland or the UK or, you know, Germany or America would, um, you know, come out and outright complain and threaten to retaliate because, you know, these businesses are seen as private enterprises. You know, yeah. they're, they're not, yeah. um, you know, they're, they're separate. They're not, it's not the government's responsibility. Yeah, um, I think, yeah, there really needs to be, um, I, I don't know, do you think that's, possible like for there to be a greater separation from um economic interests and political interests in the future in in southeast asia and in korea oh uh, yeah i do think that there needs to be more of a separation of these interests um and i think that's one of the biggest problems uh that face east asian um economies once they reach uh, a highly developed status um so you know japan highly highly developed 
nation um, that has excellent social welfare, uh, you know, extremely prosperous, third largest economy in the world. There's Korea, uh, which I think now is the 10th or 11th largest economy in the world. Uh, and, you know, it's also a very prosperous country. You know, China has been rising for some time. China is, a, is also an economic success story. It still has things to work on. But um, once these countries uh, attain this, this incredible, you know, this incredible level of prosperity, mm-hmm. um, the, the question becomes, well, how do we, you know, how do we untangle business and politics and separate them? Um, because you know, in the past, when we were rising, it made sense to have business and politics working together. That that would, um, you know, set goals for the nation. That would, you know, force people to to work hard to, you know, to make a profit to export their way out of poverty. There were set goals that the nations and the businesses followed together, and that's why they were so successful. Um, but then the question is, you know, if we're, you know, if we reach that point where we're already successful, mm-hmm. um, you know, like businesses no longer have the same interests. And um, um, like business no longer have the same interest in, um, I guess, moving forward into the next stage, yeah. you know, which is like we are successful businesses now and we don't need government support. We don't need, you know, bailouts if we're going to be doing badly. We don't need, um, you know, presidential pardons when our CEOs are behaving badly. We don't need, you know, a government umbrella to keep us going because now we're global businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we've, we've seen these problems a lot in uh, Korea recently. I think Korea is at the stage now where it has to decide whether it's going to unravel uh, business and politics or whether it's just going to be, um, I guess you could say, traipsing along, uh, you know, without much of, um, uh, you know, without much future growth, without much of a success story. We saw what happened in Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Japan, um, the government did not, uh, you know, did not rein in the power of these massive corporations. And then, uh, yeah, in the early 1990s, uh, it, it was just, it was an economic, a virtual um, collapse, you could say. I mean, the, the economy just fell apart. And now yeah. Japan has had two lock decades. Um, you know, you don't see Japanese products anymore. You don't see Sony. You know, you don't see um, these companies doing very well. I mean, it's just not a very good... Um, situation, and I think that Korea is headed in that direction if it cannot change these cable groups. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. I don't know what more can I say. Um, it's really interesting. Um, just to <clears throat> sorry to follow on um, from that. Um, I was reading um, one of your pieces in uh, for the Global Post, and you were mentioning how the nineteen forty eight national security act um the from korea um like how it was originally drawn up to protect the country from north korean sympathizers and like how now it's become outdated and yeah we were also talking about how like maybe the perception has kind of changed and especially nowadays with um like trump talks and like the inter-korean uh, relations changing um, and even like in the South Korean public there's been some like websites like praising Kim Jong-un and like praising him um, in terms of like banners on some buildings in the streets like waiting his awaiting his um, visit to South Korea and then like in even in the mainstream media with um, EBS the educational broadcasting system they made um like a paper 
toy version of Kim Jong-un so it's kind of like a softening of his image and then on the other hand you have the other South Korean um South Koreans who like do not want reunification and they're um kind of criticizing Moon Jae-in like saying that he's perhaps a spy and um they're not they're saying like he's not taking care of South Korea and um you know that he increased the minimum wage and it's causing a lot of problem for people and for job seekers nowadays so um so uh, you know in terms of all this um how could yeah i suppose what i'm asking is do you think there's like a greater press freedom um nowadays and is the security act like still tying down um yeah journalists as it was in the past um i think that's my question if that makes sense yeah yeah um so um yeah uh, so i i have been following you know Moon Jae-in um so i think that so first of all i should start by saying that it's hard to tell um this early if you know if this if press freedoms are are improving or deteriorating under Moon Jae-in Um, I have been following some of the cases, um, but to be frank, I, I find that, you know, obviously there, there has been some censorship, there has been some pressure on North Korean defectors to not talk about um, their stories publicly as much. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there was also the closure of uh, 38, um, uh, what's the name, the 38 North at the, the Johns Hopkins Institute for uh, Advanced Korean Studies. You can Google that. Um, so... Mm-hmm. You know, this was done under political pressure. They were they were receiving funding from a body that was connected to the South Korean government. And after Moon Jae-in came in, um, there uh, there was political pressure from someone in his blue house to uh, shut down funding because they saw you know they, they just didn't like this um, you know this, this particular website and its analysis. Um, but uh, you can you know look at look at that up later. Look at the exact facts because yeah. I don't remember exactly how it happened. Um, But yeah, so, you know, there, there has been censorship, there has been political pressure, but I haven't really seen a case yet that has been as extreme as what was happening under President Park Geun-hye. I mean, I, I think that of recent Korean presidents, she was the one who was the most censorious of, um, of all these leaders. Um, so, you know, just to give you some examples, uh, There was a lawsuit against a Japanese reporter. Um, he was um, he was sentenced for defamation and then deported. I think I I, I don't remember the exact details because it was it escapes me. It was a few years ago. Yeah. Um, so he was deported. He faced jail time. I don't think he actually spent time in jail. Uh, but this was simply because he had uh, he had republished in the Japanese language rumors that had appeared in Korean newspapers about uh, President Park Geun Hye and. Um, you know, rumors that she was having a love affair with some guy, uh, and that, you know, because she's not married, and, you know, rumors uh, about what she was doing um, during the hours when the Sable Ferry was sinking back in 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was sued for defamation, or I don't think he was sued, I think he had criminal uh, proceedings come against him for defamation, uh, mm-hmm. and, and this was called, the, the newspaper was called the Sunkei Shimbun. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I think in the end, he actually had the case overturned, and he was allowed to return. Korea, but I'm not totally sure what happened in the end with that. Um, you know, one of the other cases 
Uh, there were quite a few. I mean, there were cases where protesters would put up um, pamphlets and signs that would, you know, protest Park Van and that the police in a few cases told them to take them down because they had to prove that these uh, signs were not defamatory of the president. Uh, South Korean def- defamation law is um, the opposite of what exists in a lot of Western countries. So, mm-hmm. you know, in the in the UK, for example, um, you know, if you're sued for defamation, you have to um, you know you have to prove that your statement has evidence uh, in court. Mm-hmm. Um, in South Korea, the more important factor is um, you know whether you harmed the public honor or the public face of the person who you're writing about. So even if a fact is true, mm-hmm. um, so it might be correct. You know you have evidence it's true, but you go to court and then the person says, well. Uh, look, this this hurt my reputation. It's hurting my business. I mean, the, the truth, you know, doesn't totally matter. So you can get, you can still get in trouble if you tell the truth in Korea. Um, but but the courts have found that, you know, if you do tell the truth and it's newsworthy, mm-hmm. uh, then you will get less prison time, usually, and less of a less of a um, less of a fine if you're being sued by someone. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's anyway. To get back to my point, yeah. so um, you know, I, I think that this kind of thing, you know, using Korea's national security law and defamation laws uh, was far more acute and serious under Park Geun-hye. Mm-hmm. Um, her administration also deported a Korean-American woman who was an American citizen, uh, but who had published a book in Korean, and it was touring South Korea, talking about North Korea. So the government, her, her administration, the government thought that she was writing things that were too friendly to North Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, so they just deported her. They just got her out of the country, and she had to leave for five years. Um, you know, and you know she's a she's Korean ethnicity. Like this is her homeland. Like this is this is her historical homeland, and she's not allowed to return. And you know, to see family, to like that that that's just possible to be in this situation where you're, um, you know, even if you're an American citizen, you're, you know, you're. you're um, anyway, so that so I, I haven't seen a case like that under. Is doing a, um, a better job on the free speech front, but mm-hmm. there are still some concerns. It's it's just this is just common in Korean politics. I mean, this is a, a pattern, and it's something that I don't think is going to change for good. So, you'll never think that, yeah, because it just. I mean, I knew that. Um, yeah, even if if something is true, that it can really get you in, in trouble in terms of defamation suits. But like, how can journalists like how do they draw the line and like doesn't that make reporting and like the reporting you did like I just it's I'd like to know more about like how did you manage in that uh, environment of like yeah. um so how did I personally manage that or how do Korean journalists manage that I think both if yeah if you'd be able to comment on that it's both like because okay. yourself well, it's just sorry just as yourself as like a freelancer and you're also working for american publications and i think you've also written for the kyunghan shinmun um but and then on the other hand there's korean journalists also working for um other korean publications so just yeah um an explanation on both fronts if yeah so um yeah so actually yeah i have some thoughts on that um so me personally i i was not so worried about getting sued for defamation in korea um because the in general the um you know 
this kind of thing doesn't really happen to Western reporters that often. Mm-hmm. Um, in general, I mean, I hate to say this, but it's, it's the reality of the world is that you know, your citizenship and your uh, ethnicity can be a shield uh, in a place like Korea. Um, because since Korea is a country that you know still has this uh, idea of rule by eth- the, the ethnic group, not rule of law or rule by the government, mm-hmm. um, the, a, lot of, a lot of Korean groups see their role as you know, having jurisdiction over people of Korean ethnicity. Right. Um, so, you know, usually, like, I'll, I'll get away just fine, but if, if, say, a Korean-American reporter or, you know, a Korean-European reporter or somebody who's of Korean ethnicity from overseas published something, they would actually be more likely to be sued simply because they're Korean and they're seen as a part of this, you know, global community of fellow uh, Koreans. Um, and, you know, that, that has happened. The other, the other group that you've got to be careful about are um, Japanese reporters because, you know, there's the historical animosity between Korea and Japan. Yeah. And uh, a Japanese reporter at the Foundation who was indeed um, sued um, and had criminal charges brought against them. Um, so uh, those are the two groups that I think suffer the most under these laws. Um, but at the same time, there have been a few instances where Western reporters have been targeted Mm-hmm. Um, but to my knowledge, they've been writing for uh, Korean publications, so that's right. a little bit different. Uh, there was one man, so Mike Breen is a, uh, a British citizen and uh, a longtime resident of Korea. He's an honorary resident of Seoul. Um, and he's also one of the foremost writers on Korean culture and Korean society. Uh, he's written a number of successful books, well-received books. Um, but he was sued by Samsung. Um, I think in 2010 or 2000, I think 2010, uh, it was Christmas Day 2010, but you should double check that. Mm-hmm. Um, he had written a satire in a local newspaper, the Korea Times, uh, in which he, um, he joked, he made jokes about everyone. He joked about the president, he um, you know, joked about various K-pop stars, he joked about Samsung. And he made a he made a joke and he compared Samsung to North Korea because of this hereditary dynasty. Um, yeah. Samsung sued him and sued the newspaper and the editor. I think for one million dollars each U.S. dollars. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so in the end, I mean, it, so so he was sued, but um, in the end, so they dropped the case against the newspaper, and then in the end. Uh, the Samsung side, the representatives, uh, lawyers, did not show up to his court hearing uh, one day, and the judge decided to drop the case because there was no, um, there was no clear victim. I mean, if, they, if the lawyers didn't show up, then that must have meant that there was nothing, nothing more to say. Um, so, you know, that, that's an example. He got, you know, he got off. He was okay in the end. They dropped the suit, but you know, not without many months of just, you know, devastating. Um, you know, legal fees and, mm-hmm. you know, the, all the, the worries that you're going to go bankrupt and you're going to, you know, what if they find you liable for defamation and then, you know, you're going to be paying Samsung $1 million. They're, they're going to be drawing from your bank account for the next 20 years, 30 years. Like, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's a terrible situation to be in, but um, it is a risk. But that, that's one of the rare cases where a Western journalist has actually been sued. So, uh, where, where were we when, I got, yeah. when we got hung up on? Sorry, um, you were just about to explain like the, the difference um, with um, journalism in Korea and you were talking about pack journalism. Um, yeah, you were just about to 
explain the difference? Um, yeah. yeah, so journalism in Korea has a different self-governing system. Um, mm-hmm. Korean journalists are split up into press clubs, um, and these are groups that uh, typically they have an actual office, a presence um, inside a company or a government ministry. Um, and to join a press club can be difficult. You have to um, submit an application and you have to be trusted by everyone in the club. You have to be trusted by the company. Um, and then what, so what happens is that, let's say you're in the press club at, um, I don't know, I'll just give an example, at uh, Hyundai, so the, the car company. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you join their press club um, and you are expected uh, to, um, you know, report a certain line. So the company will come out and they'll give everybody in the press club uh, an announcement or a press release. And uh, as a condition of being in the press club, you typically, you know, have to follow the official company line. Uh, you don't want to anger the press club too much. So this has the effect of homogenizing the reporting. Often mm-hmm. Korean journalists, um, you know, in the, in the West, typically journalists, you know, they're in the newsroom or, you know, they're working on their laptop at home. You know, they're working in the field somewhere. But in Korea... Journalists spend most of their time um, at the company press club or the government press club, and they'll just be hanging out there, and you know that, that essentially becomes their office. So it, it homogenizes the reporting uh, because every single reporter is getting, uh, you know, the same announcement, the same press announcement, you know, the same information, and they don't really have um, the tools to challenge it. I mean, they, they can't really do a lot to, you know, to attempt the, you know, sort of challenge the official company line. Um, they risk getting kicked out. So these press clubs, you know, they're interesting beats because they, they are secretive, they're opaque, and they have their own internal hierarchy. Um, so to become president of a press club in Korea, you know, you have to be a longtime veteran journalist, years of experience, um, known by the company, known to all the journalists in there, and they elect you um, to, to head it. And then if you're the head of, if, if you're the, head of, head of the press club, your job is to... Uh, you know, keep people in order to, you know, discipline journalists if they're out of line. Um, you know, if, if somebody is getting out of line, you can refuse them access, refuse them interviews. So it, it's it's really a system in which, um, you know, businesses and, and the government and the press are working together. Uh, they're, 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 so, I mean, you know, there has, I mean, I'm not saying that Korean journalism is necessarily terrible. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, it does have some independence. There have been, um, some, some strong reports in the past few years. There's been some excellent investigative journalism coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, it was JTBC, a Korean news channel, that brought down President Park Geun-hye and the impeachment scandal. They got a hold of a tablet um, that, uh, you know, a tablet computer that um, that Jason Seal, who was, it, it was, it was a tablet computer that showed notes made by the president's crony. You know that showed that proved that she had access to all her speeches and schedules, even though she was not a member of the government. You know mm-hmm. she had no security clearance to get access to these things. Um, so this was this spark that brought down President Park Geun Hye, and it was GTBC that did the investigative journalism and decided to publish it quite boldly um, because in the past Korean uh, Korean newspapers and Korean television channels have been reluctant to, to do this sort of journalism. I mean it's just it's risky and it. You know, it'll fall afoul of, you know, the government press clubs. Um, so, you know, I, I do applaud them for what they did. I think that Korean journalism has been improving. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, I don't say that it's not free. You know, it's not totally independent. It still has a ways to go. But, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think that things are getting better now. 
just to continue on that, just um, off the top of my head, I just know that is it Hankure? It's like a left wing paper, um, and then there's um, like an investigative team. Um, I think it's called News Tapa. I think in um, what I was mentioning to you, you that I was mentioning that to you before. Um, and just yeah, do you think with um those two and then JTVC, um, like is this can they uh-huh. improve? Wait, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but what was the, what was that newspaper you mentioned, the left wing newspaper? Hank, Hankura? I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing, oh, the yeah, I'm pronouncing it wrong properly. Um, yeah, if just if they have the potential to move uh, Korean journalism forward. Um, yeah. Um, sorry, of, what was, sorry, the connection again. So what was sorry. the question there? Yeah, um, just if um, like Hankura and there's um, an investigative news team called News Tapa, um, and then with the TV um, channel you just mentioned, JTVC, if they have like the potential to move um, Korean journalism on from groupthink and to be like more free. Uh, yeah, I mean, so News Tapa, Hungary, all these newspapers, um, so they, so the Hungary is the child of Korea's democratic movement. I mean, it's uh, it, it's a newspaper that was started in the 1980s, and it was the voice of the democratic and the labor uprisings of the time, which were extremely raucous. Uh, you know, these were, you know, these were, we're, we're talking Molotov cocktails in the streets, and, uh, you know, at times violent protests, and also protests that collided um, with a lot of anti-Western ideologies and nationalistic ideologies. Um, the Hungary was the child of that, and, you know, since then, I think it's morphed and it's become more of a mainstream um, newspaper representing the broad Korean left, so Moon um, Jae-in, Kim Dae-jong, uh, so the old democracy activists of Korea who now, you know, occupy major political positions. Mm-hmm. Um, this is this is the Hungarian's voice. This is who they represent. Um, so yeah, I, I do think that you know, um, even the Hungary, you know, even um, uh, you know, even the Chunghang, even these West Wing newspapers, they still have a certain constituency, so to speak. Um, and you know, they're not totally independent, in my opinion. I mean, I, I've witnessed, I, I've been reading some of the coverage, and in both English and Korean, um, you know, sometimes there will be some very aggressive conjecture and some aggressive reporting. Um, you know, one example is, um, uh, like, um, I'll send you the link, but there was one example where uh, the, the Hungary uh, had wrongly reported, um, you know, just based on uh, no evidence, uh, that uh, somebody in a meeting with Donald Trump had said something related to North Korea, and it caused a huge uproar over here in the state, too. I mean, it was something that the White House forcefully denied uh, but I'll, I'll send you the exact link. I don't remember what exactly that report was on. Thank you. Um, so yeah, um, so yeah. I mean, it's newspapers. They're not. They they do a good job in some cases. They're not totally uh, independent. I would say. I mean, they do. You know, they do have their own networks. They have their own systems set up. Uh, I, so Newstapa is an interesting one because Newstapa is really, you know, you could say the the first um, one of the first. Um, truly independent journalism sources in Korea. And there's also a magazine called Sisa in 
um, which was formed by a group of disgruntled journalists who were angry about corporate censorship of their old magazine, which was called Cisa Journal. So those two, Cisa and, and um, Newstapa, I think that they're more unbridled than what they report. Um, at the time, at, at times, I, you know, their some of their reporting has been uh, questioned in Korea, you know, in terms of ethics and whether they're following an ethical standard when they break major investigations. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like for example, there was a report on um, the Samsung chairman Lee Kun Hee. It was news stopper that that obtained uh, blackmail videos uh, that somebody had tried to blackmail Samsung, and when they were charged with the crime, found guilty. Um, and they, they had films, uh, or they had one film that showed him with a group of prostitutes. And, you know, these were five prostitutes in the Samsung chairman's apartment. He was paying them, you know, he talked to them as if he was, you know, deeply familiar with them. I mean, it seemed like they were on intimate terms. Um, and, like, you know, that, so the big question is, if you're an investigative journalist at a place like Nusapa, um, and you find these tapes that, that were obtained for the purpose of blackmail, um, is it ethical for you to publish them? I mean, I, I did. I interviewed Nusaba. I talked to them about this. I met the journalist, and he defended Nusaba, and he said, "Well, you know, yes, it is fine because you know we're we're not the ones who were committing the blackmail. We we talked about this internally very carefully. We we've decided that the more important value is to hold um, the people in power to account. Mm-hmm. You know, whether or not the the tape was obtained by a source, you know, for the purpose of blackmail. So so." It, you could say, in their view, the ends justify the means. You know, it's, it's okay to break the rules once in a while um, if you really believe that, um, you know, there is a major story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, when you're thinking about this, you have to also think about this in terms of the environment that they operate in, because um, in, the, in the Korean journalism environment, there's often not a lot of good information to come by. There's often not a lot of good evidence, because businesses and government there can be extremely opaque. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not going to tell you anything. They're not going to release documents to show you. So once you come upon this video that shows the Samsung chairman, you know, with prostitutes paying prostitutes, um, you know, that's that's a major find, and that's something that yeah, I think speaks to some of the, the you could say the moral decrepitness, the moral uh, bankruptcy of some of some of the Korean leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think that that you know that, that you could make a case that publishing those videos was in the public interest and was justifiable. Um, uh, thank you for your insight into this and like also the political and you know economic um, interests we've been talking about. And I just wanted to um, ask like about yourself to finish up, um, like about your music interests in uh, as a trombonist. I found that very like unique and interesting. Um, if you want to talk a bit yeah. about that. Yeah, sure. So. Um... I, I grew up as a musician. I come from a musical family. Uh, my grandfather was a composer uh, who was well-known in his day back in the 1930s. Uh, my grandmother was a, a pianist. Uh, and, you know, I've always come from a family where, you know, musical talent and where musical talent is valued. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started studying piano at a young age. I studied, I started at five, and then I took up the trombone at nine. My father played trombone, too. That's why I took it up. Um, but uh, growing up, you know, I, I really loved jazz in particular, mm-hmm. and I decided, you know, I, I thought about becoming a professional musician. I, I was um, 
you know, learning jazz on the trombone mostly, and, you know, I just, I, I would go downtown, I would go to Chicago, I'm from Chicago, and I would go to the city, and, you know, Chicago's a big jazz and blues town, that's part of the Chicago heritage, um, and, you know, I would play with uh, a swing band there, a jazz band, and we would, you know, we would have a great time together playing at jazz clubs. Um, when I was in high school, I also did some work, I, I was working on the administrative side of the Chicago Jazz Ensemble, um, so, you know, I, I did have that that um, that future in mind, I, I, I was considering going on to become a jazz musician. I played through college. I got a, uh, a scholarship um, at George Washington University to play trombone, and I played through college for four years. Um, but then, you know, I, so I went on a tour after we finished college. I had a group that I played in called Hello Society. It was like a fusion, fusion rock jazz. It was this mixture of modern music. Um, and you know, I I knew that like I, I knew that this had to be a hobby because it's it's really hard to make a living as a musician. Um, so I decided mm-hmm. instead to focus my efforts on the, the, the foreign correspondent work. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I haven't regretted it. I mean, I, I still play occasionally, but I'm not as intense as I used to be. I mean, I play more as a hobby now instead of with the professional goal in mind. Okay, so you'd never you wouldn't consider like going back into it or changing careers to, to that uh, ever in the future? Uh, no, no, mm-hmm. I, I would not. I, I think I, I only would do that if a big opportunity came to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, you know, by now I'm out of practice and I'm not, you know, I, I'm not as uh, pristine of a player as I, I used to be. <laughs> uh, um, so, I, I, you know, I would have to go back and I would have to relearn something to get my chops better. But... Um, yeah, I also think that, you know, once you reach a certain age, I mean, being a musician, it's really, touring a musician, it's really something that you have to do when you're young. And, you know, now I'm 32 years old. Um, yeah, I, I could still do it if I wanted to, but I'm not going to be stable. I'm not going to be financially stable. I'm, you know, I'm going to be touring a lot, moving around a lot, and it's just something that, you know, I, I think that I probably passed my peak when it comes to becoming a musician. Um, and... So just to like final question, thank you for your time. Um, from now on, would you? So you're. I just want to come back to the question about if you'll focus more on being an author now rather than a journalist. And since um your book on Samsung uh will be coming out next year, and um you're working on your next book about um persecution, the per- persecutions of. Muslims in um, Western China and yeah if you're just going to solely focus on that area of work and releasing more books yeah yeah so um, I uh, yeah so I have changed my focus as I'm getting older um, you know I I'm not that old I mean I, I I'm so pretty young yeah uh, but uh, of course <laughs> but um, I'm a uh, so you know as a younger journalist in my 20s mm-hmm. Um, I really, you know, was an article, I was a features writer. Um, I, I never really did much news, but I was writing features from around the world, from around Asia. And, you know, at some point, um, you really do hit the peak of what you can accomplish in that field. Uh, and I really felt that, you know, writing books is the next logical step. If you, I, I've been writing articles for 10 years. Uh, I, you know, I, I've been getting, you know, I, I feel that I, I've written the articles I want to write, and I'm not really, I'm not interested in writing more uh, magazine articles at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. So, 
I find that books are a good transition because when you're writing books, um, this is a book is your baby. You know, it's something that you work on for a long time, and it mm-hmm. it becomes so you know internal to who you are that it's really yours. You know, whereas when you write an article, it, it's different because an article is not always yours. It's the publication. Yeah. It's the website. Um, and they're going to shape it according to their house format, their house style. They're going to shape it, um, you know, according to their audience. But when you write a book, it's, you know, you have a publisher, you have a contract with the publisher, but the publisher sees it as your work, as your baby, and they allow you to, you know, do what you want with it for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then also, you know, there, uh, I am concerned about the... Uh, you know, the decline of journalism as a field right now. I mean, there is going to be a lot more instability in the future. I don't think that, um, you know, journalism as a profession, I don't think that it's the viable career it used to be. It's, um, yeah. you know, it's, it's becoming more like being, you know, a professional actor. Like, you have to support yourself with other work. Um, mm-hmm. Because journalist salaries are, like, the reality is that they are um, depressed and they're, you know, they're either stagnated or they're going down. Mm-hmm. Uh, back when I started writing, magazine articles, I would get paid between $1 and $2 a word. Uh, so, you know, I could write one article, and I would get, you know, you, you could get uh, a good $7,000 to $10,000 if you wrote a major, major feature article in a major magazine. You know, that's something that you can make a living on. Like you, could, you could spend three months writing that article, and you could, um, you know, make it in a place like India or China or Korea where the prices are lower. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the economics just no longer add up with the Internet. Um, you know, now, if you write that same article, you might get, you know, between 500 and $1,000. It's simply not uh, a viable, um, you know, econ- the, the economics of the profession are just not viable anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so that, that's one of the reasons I wrote. So it, it's, both, it's both because, you know, I want to write books. It's something I've always wanted to do. But it's also because I've realized that, I, you know, I, me and any other journalist, unless you're super famous, um, just cannot make a living writing articles alone anymore. You have to be a jack of all trades. You have to do a lot of different mediums. Yeah. Or you can, you know, climb the ladder since you've already been like a senior correspondent and you could enter another organization that has the financial backing if you wanted to, or it's not something that. Yeah. It's still not something you would that, consider. That is possible. Yeah, well, that is possible, but the, uh, I mean, that also has drawbacks now, uh, because most correspondent jobs are actually contract-based, you're, you're still a freelancer, um, so you don't get, you often, usually, if you're working for a major newspaper as a foreign correspondent, um, you're not getting the same benefits, the healthcare, um, you know, the, the housing, the schooling for your kids that, you know, a regular staff correspondent would get you know, traditionally, um, you're, you're still treated as a freelancer, you're still expendable, and uh, yes, the, the salaries are depressed. So it really is a, um, I mean, it's not the best situation right now because it's really, it's a situation where um, the reality is that if you start out as a young correspondent now, uh, you're not gonna get a raise for many years, you're not gonna really advance through the newspaper hierarchy anymore, it's just not something that's very common. Mm-hmm. And you know, I see a lot of correspondents, they start burning out in their late 20s or early 30s because they realize that there's nowhere more to go. They're, you know, they're gonna be stuck in the same position um, you know, for the rest of their lives or they can enter public relations and uh, make four times the salary 
mm-hmm. you know, and then, and then they can have kids and support a family, and they can, you know, have a, they, 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 I think that a lot of them, they, uh, they start to burn out, and they want this return to normalcy, they don't want to be, you know, running around and, you know, in some crazy, insane, you know, war overseas, and then, uh, you know, there's a chance that they might get killed, yeah. um, and then, you know, they're technically freelancers, they're not going to be covered by any sort of insurance if they're hurt, or, you know, they're, you know, their families are not going to get any sort of, you know, payout if, you know, if they're kidnapped or something. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I could go on and on about that, but, I mean, the it, it really is, you know, a job that you have to be extremely passionate about. It's something that, you know, you have to go mid knowing um, in this modern era that, you know, you can't, you have to go in knowing that you're not going to be doing it forever, usually. Mm-hmm. Um, just because it's just, you know, there's a good chance that, you know, by the time you're 35, you will have been laid off a few times. That's just the reality of the, the industry. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I would say to any young journalist right now, like, go in knowing what you're getting into and just be passionate and, you know, you got to really do your best and also just have a plan B because you just really don't know right now where the industry is and, and it's going to be unstable. Um, but, yeah, I mean, by all means, I, I wouldn't discourage going into journalism. Yeah. Thank you so much for for the words of encouragement it's kind of it's very depressing to be honest like what you were talking I'm about sorry. <laughs> no but uh, yeah, yeah i know it's depressing yeah, uh, it's a bit I, I, and i don't mean to discourage well. anybody but uh, well i don't mean to discourage anybody but it's just um uh, i mean it's just a changing industry and uh yeah. you know i think that you know young correspondents just have to be ready for like they have to know what exactly they're getting into because it's just it's so different than what it used to be right now well, thank you so much. Um, I'm sorry I've like, taken a lot of your time up to now, but um, like, really it's been like a really good insight that like I wouldn't be able to get from like just reading um, an article or like because of your experience. And yeah, just thank you again um, for your time. All right, Sabrina. Well, thanks. Yeah, thanks for taking the time to chat. It was good to chat. And yeah, I hope that was helpful.